Welcome to chapel this morning. I want to introduce you to a new friend of mine. Jeff Todd is here, and he's here representing an organization that's doing a pretty exciting event tonight, and I want you to hear about it. So, Jeff, share with us. Thank you. All right, y'all. Well, last chapel, last opportunity to kind of share a little bit about last chapel, not for y'all, last chapel for me today. Sorry. Oh, that, no, that's, a, that's, wrong. that's not a good response. <laughs> this is a great thing. It's a great thing. Well, y'all, we have been uh, very blessed by these guys to allow us to come in and share a little bit about uh, our organization. I'm with After Dark, which I know you guys have an After Dark here, so it's a little different. We are calling our event Crossroads here because you already have a pre-existing After Dark. But we do this event across the nation. In fact, uh, tomorrow night we'll be at Auburn University and Wednesday we'll be at Texas Tech. But tonight we are at the greatest university on planet Earth, Baylor, right? Come on, let's go, let's go. Uh, and so here's what we've got. We've got for you at the Ferrell Center tonight, starting at 8 p.m., a free event, which is cheaper than ramen. That's a great thing in the, in the uh, finances of a college student. And here's what you get for cheaper than ramen, a concert with Matt Wirtz and Dave Barnes, uh, QB1 here at Baylor, Heisman Hopeful, Bryce Petty. Girls, you're welcome. Uh, we have got a speaker named Joe White, who's going to talk about the topic of Is Jesus Still Relevant Today? Uh, and then local musician Tranny Stevens is also involved in tonight. And so we'd love to invite anyone and everyone to come out. One thing I just want to clarify with y'all, uh, this is not just a Christian event. It's not just a night of praise and worship. Uh, the goal behind the event that we take and, and that's been in front of 400,000 plus college students on hundreds of college campuses is a night that we really want anyone and everyone, regardless of what your background is, to come out and hear a message that, again, is a great question for anyone to, to ask which is, is Jesus still relevant? And so we'd love to have you come out. Again, it's free. It's happening tonight. It's not an annual event. So if you don't hit it tonight, you miss it. And uh, we feel strongly that the 400,000 plus that have experienced it, and many of which have said it's a night they'll never forget, uh, is the same result that you'll have. So we'd love to have you come out. So let me just see who's coming. Who's coming? All right. Good. That's a lot. No pressure. If you haven't decided, you have until 8 tonight to decide. So we'll see you tonight. Thank you, Baylor. Thanks, Jeff. I want to introduce you to our chapel speaker who will be out in just a few moments. Her name is, her name is Andrea Palpentilli. And she was, I became aware of her work about two years ago. Some people made me aware of her book, Faith and Other Flat Tires, which is out in the lobby right now. When the bookstore found out she was coming, they were adamant about coming to share that book with you. And so they take all, all forms of payment. But I really encourage you to pick it up and read it uh, because she illuminates faith and doubt in her own life. And she's going to share a little bit about that with us today. Growing up as a missionary kid in Kenya, growing up as a missionary kid in Kenya, she became instantly aware that her faith was informed by something other than her own construction of that. And so she began to deconstruct that faith and reconstruct it. And she'll take us along that journey today. I'm glad that you're here. And I'm glad that you'll be able to witness what God is doing in this place through her words this morning. Andrea has two daughters and one young son who's only six weeks old. And he is here in Waco Hall. I know, it's cute. His name's Asa, and he's actually in the back. If you want to meet Asa, he will be in the lobby with her after chapel. 
while she is signing books and conversing with you. We are very chatty this morning. And I want you to give your full and undivided attention to our guest today. The last time she came was about a year ago. Last time she came was about a year ago. And I will tell you that the reason we invited her back was because you guys, the students who were in chapel, responded so positively to her visit. You responded by coming uh, and talking to her after chapel, but you also responded with countless emails to myself and to Dr. Perlison, um, telling us that you enjoyed her talk and that it prompted conversations that would otherwise not have happened. So I'm grateful the lights have just gone out. It's not going to help your chattiness. <laughs> there we go. I'm grateful that she's been willing to come back. Let's begin our time this morning, however, with a word of prayer. God of love and God of grace, God of peace, work within us this morning. Work within our minds, work within our hearts, work within this community as we listen together, as we hear, and hopefully as we are transformed. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Will you welcome with me, and again, be very attentive this morning. Welcome with me to Baylor Chapel, Andrea Palpendilly. I'm breaking protocol, right? Bringing a baby onto the stage. I'm not going to speak with him with my hands the whole time. But you guys are the third service, and I thought you were in the right to see the baby first, right? So this is Asa. I was uh, walking outside of the hotel this morning, actually. <laughs> this woman standing outside the hotel, she said, Oh my gosh, that's really freaky. I thought that was a real baby that you were holding. <laughs> of course, it is a real baby. But anyway, <laughs> let me hand him off. You can meet him, actually, and hold him if you want after I'll be in the foyer. So. I drove up last year when I came. I came with my four-year-old, and let's see, Eden would have been about nine months at the time. And when I told Madeline, my oldest child, that I was going to be speaking to students on campus, she said, well, how are they all going to fit into the hotel room, Mommy? She thought that all of you were going to come to the hotel room and hear me speak. But anyway, it's great to be here. Kids in tow. This morning I'm talking about church. My husband teaches uh, at St. Edwards down in Austin. I don't know if you're familiar with the school. He teaches philosophy, and a couple years ago, some faculty members invited me on campus to speak. And after I was done speaking, one of the students raised her hand, and she said, I'm a Christian, grew up in the church, but I don't like the church, and I don't like its history. Why should I stay? Really loaded question. And before I tell you how I answered her question, I'll tell you a little bit about my own faith crisis with the church in my early 20s. I asked that same exact question. I don't like the church. Why should I stay? Now, by way of backstory, Ryan, give you a little picture. I grew up as a missionary kid. My, par my parents were Quaker medical missionaries to Kenya for about six years. And then when we came back stateside, I grew up in an evangelical Presbyterian church in the Northwest. Had a great childhood. And then I went off to college. 
and uh, went off to a university called Whitworth. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a lot like Baylor. My parents actually thought they were sending me to an institution that would shore up my faith, right? I'm a Christian going off to a Christian institution. Surely my faith will be emboldened. Well, actually, the opposite happened. My junior year in college, I found myself sliding into a faith crisis, asking a lot of really, really hard questions about faith and about the institution of faith. So my faith crisis, well, I should back up and tell you a little bit more about that particular moment my junior year. So that was the year that I ripped the ichthus off the back bumper of my car. That was also the year that I started hanging out in bars with my English major friends. We would dress up in black and go to downtown bars and smoke and drink and talk about despair and existential nihilism and all of the nerdy, heady things that English majors talk about in the back of bars. That was who I was my junior year and who I remained for a number of years. And it was very real. It wasn't a put on. I was genuinely struggling with faith and struggling with the culture of faith and the institution of faith. Now, my crisis was motivated by three particular struggles. First, I struggled with the problem of evil. And if you haven't asked this question, you should. It's a question that every human being has to ask. Why would a good God allow suffering? I'm not talking about that subject this morning. They're actually really meaningful insights um, in response to that question. But at the time, I was really struggling with that question. Second, the hiddenness of God. Philosophers call it the hiddenness of God. In layman's terms, why is God so inaccessible? Why, when I pray, does God not always answer my prayers? Why does God seem out of reach to me? So, problem of evil, hiddenness of God, and then the third struggle, the one I'll be talking about this morning, the institutional church. There's a chapter in my memoir called The Church Wears High-Waisted Pants. That was how I thought about the church when I was 21. The church was this guy, if he were to be personified, he would be personified as the guy who had no fashion sensibilities, was out of sync with culture, drove his mama's Buick, listened to Kenny G, whatever. Um, that was the church to me. I wanted the church to be the guy who wore cargo pants and read Russian novels and listened to Smashing Pumpkins or insert whatever hip band you like, right? That's what I wanted the church to be. It fell short of my expectations. Um, now, there were three reasons why I didn't like the church. One, I didn't feel like the church had substantive answers to my intellectual questions. Um, and that was a misperception, but that was a very real understanding that I had at the time. I just didn't feel like the answers were there. Second, I didn't know if my doubt was safe inside the space of the sanctuary. Could I walk into church and raise my hand and say, you know what, I don't, I don't understand. I'm having a really hard time. I don't know if I believe in God. I don't know if I believe in the Christian faith specifically. Am I a theist? What am I? I didn't know if those questions, that doubt would be received in the space of the sanctuary. And third, I, tr I struggled with church history. Has the church done any good? Has it mostly done ill? What social good has been done in the name of the church? So those were my three specific struggles. My senior year, so my junior year, I start sliding into this faith crisis. My senior year, I graduate from college and end up for three months uh, for the summer in Nairobi, Kenya, working in the slums. And if anybody has ever been to Kenya and to Nairobi, you know what the Kibera slums look like. They rim the edge of Nairobi and they're just depressing. In the middle of those slums, there was an orphanage, and still is, a Mother Teresa orphanage. 
And every week, I spent time volunteering in that orphanage. Specifically, I spent time in the AIDS nursery. Every time I was there, I would hold these tiny, premature little babies all wrapped up in muslin. I was already having a faith crisis. You hold an AIDS baby, and that puts you over the edge, right? Holding this little infant and thinking, how did this happen? By no fault of your own, you contracted AIDS. By no fault of your own, you might die. And many of them did. So that's how I spent the, the, year, sorry, the summer after my senior year. I was already lost. By the time I came back from that summer in the slums, I was even more lost. I was feeling lost existentially, spiritually, intellectually. I didn't know what I believed. I was still going to church at the time, out of habit more than anything, honestly. And after I came back from my summer in Nairobi, my older brother invited me to go to church. His daughter was getting baptized, so I went for my niece, really, more than for any other reason. And that morning, the pastor preached a sermon on Psalm 91. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the passage, it says, among other things, if you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. Well, it's a really difficult passage to interpret. You can interpret it poetically or figuratively, or you can interpret it literally. And the pastor that morning, much to my disappointment, interpreted it literally. And he said to us in so many words, if you just believe, if you just have enough faith, you'll be protected from suffering. You'll have an insurance policy against pain. Well, I had just been in the slums of Nairobi, right? Holding AIDS babies. And the mere insinuation that an AIDS baby was responsible for her suffering and that somehow her faith would be affected by that, it was ridiculous to me. So in the middle of the sermon, I was feeling honestly just tormented. I could not bear to hear the sermon anymore. And I was sitting about halfway down the sanctuary, not on the outside, in the middle of the pew, surrounded by my family, my Christian, my very Christian family. In the middle of the sermon, my heart was overheated. I stood up, I leaned over to my father, and I said, this is bullshit. And I walked out to the end of the pew, and, I walked, and then I walked out of the church entirely, on the verge of tears. And it wasn't the last time that I stepped foot in the church before my, my full-fledged faith crisis, um, but it was a moment of symbolic departure. It was the moment that my heart departed from the church when I threw up my hands and just said, I'm done, I'm finished, I can't do this anymore. And then I left a, a number of months after. For a number of years, I was just gone. And I don't regret it. That is another conversation to be had, but I had to leave the church in order to find it. So let's set aside my story for just a minute. I'll leave you with a fake cliffhanger because obviously you know what happens. I come back to the church or else Ryan Richardson, your chaplain, would not have invited me to speak this morning. But let's pretend like it's a real cliffhanger. Set my, my story aside and I'll come back to it. Let's step back for a big picture view. Whether or not you know it, your priests, your pastors, your chaplains, your professors, and probably your parents are talking about the church crisis in America. Why are young people, like you and me, fleeing the church? Barna Group, they're a research um, organization. According to a recent study, they estimate that 80% of those raised in the church, 80% will be disengaged by the time they're 29. I was one of them. Now, Barna Group president, his name's Dave Kinneman. He's a great guy. This is how he describes it. Imagine, and I'm quoting him now, imagine a group photo of all the students who come to your church in a typical year. Now take a big fat marker, 
and cross out three out of every four faces. That's what we're talking about. Now, last week, they actually just came out with a study, um, another study on the subject of church, and they asked their participants this question. What, if anything, helps Americans grow in their faith? So, by way of reply, participants talked about faith, family, having kids, reading the Bible, praying, whole laundry list of things. Church did not break the top ten list. Did not break the top ten list. That would not have happened 50 years ago. So, there's obviously... There's something going on. There is a church crisis. And there are lots of reasons why we leave the church. And I get to say why because I did leave the church. And I've shared with you a little bit briefly about some of those reasons. And you can read more about them in my memoir. But there are a whole list of reasons beyond that that are cited by lots of young people. Right? We don't like the politics. We feel like the church is out of sync with culture. We don't like the worship style. We feel like the church has done great ill. The list goes on and on. And I'll dwell on that last point very briefly. It's not what I'm talking about this morning, but uh, we talk a lot about the harm that has been done in the name of the church. We don't talk a lot about the social good. Um, and I would invite you to contact me if that's something that you struggle with. There are a lot of amazing myth-busting, stereotype-breaking resources out there on this subject. Um, and I grew up with these stereotypes, right, about Protestant missionaries and colonialism, etc. I actually just wrote a piece for Christianity Today, and I mention it only because you might be interested in reading it on this subject. Um, and it turns out that Protestant missionaries actually had a really profound impact on the emergence of democracy globally. So there's some really exciting information out there that um, runs contrary to a lot of the stereotypes and stigmas that we carry around. But again, that's not the subject of my talk this morning. You are welcome, however, to contact me. This morning, for the sake of the argument, let's just concede that the church has done good, right? It sparked literacy movements. It established hospitals and schools globally. It's established orphanages and taking care of the disenfranchised. Let's just assume that, okay? The truth is, most of us would not be convinced to go back to church because of that fact. Most of us are going to ask the question, what good is the church for me individually? And it's not necessarily the question we should ask, honestly but it is the question that we ask. What does this institution mean to me? So let's come back to my story. Uh, I'm skipping over all of the sexy fun stuff, right? I left the church for a couple of years and sowed my wild oats, as they say. Um, and you can read about that if you want. I could regale you with stories and it would be lots of fun, but I'm gonna skip over all of that material and bring you back to the point in my story arc um, at which I returned to the church. Now, my return was not triumphant. Um, I came back, honestly, because I felt like churchlessness was more dissatisfying than church itself. The real crisis wasn't leaving the church. Anybody can leave the church. Coming back to the church and sticking it out, that was the hard part. So I came back to the church at age 25, got married a couple years later, and moved down to Arizona. My husband was working on his PhD in philosophy at Arizona State. And after various failed attempts to find a church, we ended up at this little non-denominational church called Praxis. It was loca located right downtown, within walking distance of downtown Tempe, a couple blocks away from campus, three blocks away was Casey Moore's Irish pub. Every church should have a pub within walking distance. So it was this very hip, urban little church. And it felt like the perfect fit for me, someone who had just defected from the church for a number of years. So we started going to Praxis. The, ch uh, the pastor was in his mid-twenties, really smart, likable, um, laid-back guy, the kind of guy you'd 
grab a beer with at Casey Moore's Irish Pub. Um, I still remember actually one Sunday watching him lean forward into the front pew and, and pick up an infant for baptism. And I, instead of saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he said, and I quote, dude, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that was the kind of laid back, casual church that I was attending at the time. Um, we actually had buffet-style communion. There was a table at the back of the church, and every once a month, I think was when we took communion, he would point to the table in the back of the church and say in so many words, serve yourselves. So very, very informal. Presbyterian in me actually couldn't bring myself to serve myself the sacrament of communion. For two years, I did not take communion. But those informalities aside, we actually loved the church. The worship, as you can imagine, was very contemporary. It's the kind of evocative, emotive music you'd hear on FM radio. Heavy guitar riffs and such. It's the kind of music that was meant to inspire you, meant to make me feel awesome about Jesus, right? My daughter, my four-year-old, loves superlatives. She loves to say, super, super awesome. Mommy, that was a super, super awesome movie. Is that your super, super favorite flavor? Right? That was how church felt sometimes, that I was supposed to feel something. If I just felt enough, if I just prayed hard enough, my faith would be sustained. Well, I couldn't sustain those feelings. There were times when I sat in church and I thought, I don't feel anything. Am I supposed to feel something? And if I am, is there something wrong with me? Is this indicative of you know, some kind of deficiency in my own faith? Right? So I had this crisis within a crisis, right? Sitting in church and thinking, I don't know. I don't know how to do this thing called church. What am I supposed to feel? I couldn't tell you. At the time, I couldn't have told you what was missing. But I felt that there was something missing about worship. Now, about that time, my husband got a job here at St. Ed's. And we moved to Austin, uprooted again. And I had to start all over again in finding a church. It was really overwhelming, quite frankly. I thought, I can't do this again. So there's this question hanging in the air of, how do we find a church? Are we going to find a church? Now, I'm going to read to you a passage from a manuscript that's in progress that tells you the story of how we happened upon this church that we now attend. And I'm throwing you into the middle of the story. It was a Saturday morning. Our four-year-old was driving us nuts, so we decided to take her to a park. So here's the story of what happens. We encounter some people from the church at this park. So I'm going to tell you, or I'm going to read two excerpts. When we pulled into the park that morning, we saw what looked, like to, what looked like an organized event. Someone cooking hot dogs on a grill, tables set up here and there, people talking in groups. I thought, crap, we stumbled, we stumbled into some church event. Someone is going to try and tell me about Jesus. I turned out to be right about the first part, but not the second. I asked the man next to us as he was getting out of his car, are you affiliated with a church of some kind? Any other day, I never would have asked. I would have clenched my teeth the way I did when someone came knocking on my door with a Bible in hand. On this day, however, I felt some inexplicable curiosity. We're with Christchurch, the man said, putting out his hand. I'm Eric, by the way. He seemed normal enough and not the proselytizing type, but still it was a risk to get personal with him, the way it was a risk to get personal with the guy at your front door trying to hawk a vacuum. Getting personal was the sales trap for selling Jesus and vacuums. I'm Andrea, I said, taking the risk. This is my husband, Steve. So now I'm going to jump you forward into the latter part of the chapter. We ended up interacting with this guy for some time, took interest and thought, yeah, this church seems like it might be worth checking out. 
So we attend the church. This is, and now so I'm gonna drop you back into the story of our first time attending this church, uh, and specifically my experience of taking communion in this church setting. Row by row, we were ushered up to the front of the church. Steve hoisted Madeline onto his hip, and then we all processed forward until we stood in front of the high windows. All 10 of us from the back row lined up together in front of the altar. I watched others and then followed their lead by stretching out my hands with palms up, ready to receive Christ. He came first, carried by a female priest who held a small tray of bread, pieces not cut with precision, but ripped and torn. He came second, not in a plastic tumbler, but in a chalice held by a male priest. He offered it to me in such a way that I felt almost like a child or like someone on her deathbed who has to drink from the hands of a stranger. Here, he says, take this, your lips are dry. He tilted the chalice at a slight degree, then tilted it again until I could taste the wine on my tongue, good and bitter. The motion was awkward, the angle of the cup not quite right. A drop of wine spilled down my chin. As I stood in front of the altar, I said with my awkward leaning posture what I couldn't say with my lips or even my heart that I needed God. He came to me not through the power of personal prayer or a surge of emotion, but in the quiet, suppressed power of liturgy, words said over and over, hands reaching out one after the other in a long line of surrender. I felt transformed by the experience. That's the tacky, embarrassing truth. I, the committed skeptic and back row church sitter, have to confess that for the first time in my life, I sold out the institution of the church. I bought the vacuum, so to speak. I bought it not when I met the arts pastor, not even when I met the priest or his wife, but during communion. I would rather swim upstream than downstream, my husband said to me after. What do you mean, I asked. Going to a church that has more liturgy rather than less. It makes me feel anchored, he said, like a part of something bigger than myself. That's it, I thought. That's what I experience in sacramental worship. Rather than feeling caught in the cramped space of my own heart, tormented by the fluctuations of my own individual faith, like a bat in a cage, I suddenly found myself in the wide open space of a cathedral, looking up and out and breathing a sigh of relief that I could surrender my struggle under the greater architecture of the church. I didn't have to hide my doubt. My lament was part of a larger liturgy. My questions were part of a 2,000 year long conversation and my journey, part of the enduring journey of the church. By reciting creeds and taking sacraments, I was standing with millions of people spanning the world and millions of people receding back into the long corridors of history. Faith was institutional. It was something we did together, reciting in haunted repetition the words, we believe, we believe, we believe. So that gives you just a glimpse into what it was like for me to find this church that we now attend. And of course the question for you and the question for me at the time was, why this church? Why did this specific church transform my faith? Why did it compel me like nothing else had compelled me? Of course, I grew up thinking that liturgy was stuffy and rote, right? So I discovered something quite different. Uh, we talk about sustainable practices for the environment. And I wanna talk about sustainable practices for faith. What is it that sustains our faith? I would say the institution of the church, as boring as that is, the institutional church is so important to the sustainability of faith. Now I'm gonna give you three particular reasons why. First, sacramental worship. 
What are the sacraments, right? These embodied rituals, the sacrament of communion, the sacrament of baptism, sacrament of marriage. The sacraments are a visible means of God's invisible grace. A visible means of God's invisible grace. I'm a very tactile person, so I love the sacraments. For me, when I go forward and take communion, faith becomes something physical. In that moment, when I, when I take the bread and the wine, I don't have to rely on my own cognition, what I understand. I don't have to rely on my own affections, what I feel, in order to meet God in the sanctuary. God comes to me, God's grace comes to me in the simplicity of an outstretched hand. And I love that. I love that embodiment. So, sacramental worship, second liturgical worship. That's the big umbrella category, right? Under which sacramental worship comes. What is liturgy? Liturgy is defined by all the rituals, all those structured, structured rituals that we do in church, right? Acts of confession, praise, prayer, recitations, creedal statements, sacraments. Every church, even low church, low church, high church, middle church, there's some kind of liturgy and structure to that worship experience. It's a, it's a conversation that I get to have with God and with my community. And again, I grew up with this stereotype that liturgy was stuffy and rote. And then I got to discover the beauty of liturgy and the beauty of the idea that I get to step outside of myself. When I go to church, it's not about me. It's not about a big personality pastor, right? I get to connect with this wide swath of humanity. When I recite the Nicene Creed, I'm reciting it with people all over the world. I'm part of a global community, and I'm also part of a historical community. The Nicene Creed has been uttered from the words, from the lips of churchgoers for centuries, and there's something really, really beautiful and compelling about that. So liturgical worship, sacramental worship, and then institutional faith. I'm moving out here in concentric circles. Um, what does it mean to have faith practiced in an institutional setting. A friend of mine lost his wife, daughter, and mother in a car accident about 20 years ago. And after the accident, he found himself in church, standing in the back of the sanctuary, unable to sing for reasons you can imagine. He was in profound pain. His doubt was overwhelming. And in that moment, he thought to himself, I can't sing these songs right now but I'm gonna let other people sing them for me. And in that moment, his faith was not individual. It was communal, it was corporate. In his moment of crisis, he let the church carry him. And of course, I would say individual faith matters. It's so significant, but it needs a family. It needs a context, a foundation. And I had to learn that the hard way. And it was a good lesson for me to learn. As I said, I came back because I found churchlessness more dissatisfying than church. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But now when I sit in church and feel a resurgence of doubt, and I do sometimes, we don't have to pretend like doubt is something that we go through and then leave behind permanently in perpetuity, right? It doesn't just disappear. It's a healthy part of faith. So I do experience resurgences of doubt. But when, I hap when that happens now, I don't have to feel frantic. I don't have to panic. Why? And I'll reiterate what I just read, my lament my doubt is part of a larger liturgy. My questions, my skepticism are part of a conversation that has been going on for 2,000 years. Not the first person to ask these questions. And that's really liberating. And my journey, my individual journey, which matters, is part of the enduring journey of the church. So we have sacramental worship, liturgical worship, and institutional faith. 
Let me come back to that story that I told you at the beginning about the St. Ed student. So she raises her hands, she raises a hand, and she says, why should I stay? What good is the church? And I'll tell you what I told her and what I wish I could have told my 21-year-old self. First, be fair. The church has done great ill. Nobody has to deny that. We don't have to whitewash it. But the church has also done profound good. And again, that's a, an entire conversation unto itself. Second, church is like government. We are the church. If you don't like it, change it from the inside. If you feel like your, your faith, your doubt has not been received inside the sanctuary of the church, be that person that receives somebody else's doubt. Be that person that's willing to take them out for a beer and talk about these hard questions. And then third, practice faith in the context of community. You can't go it alone. The institution needs you and you need the institution. And by way of analogy, I would ask, you know, if somebody, were coming, if somebody came up to you today and asked you the question, why are you spending thousands upon thousands of dollars to go to Baylor University when you could get an online degree for literally chump change, right? I hope you would have a good answer. I hope you would have a really substantive answer to that question. I hope you would say, you know, it's actually really valuable. It's really costly, sure. But I wouldn't trade it for anything. I need the accountability. I need the teaching, the mentoring, the structure, the liturgy, right? Liturgy, these lived habits of faith in community, right? That's what the church offers. There is a, a significant place for parachurch organizations any more than an online degree can be valuable, right? You can learn a lot from an online degree, but it's not the same thing. There is indescribable value in the institutional church. Um, and while many of us are fleeing it, I genuinely hope that, that we come back to it in our own way and on our own terms. And certainly that was my story. I fled the church, found myself more dissatisfied with churchlessness, and finally realized my questions, my doubt, my struggle, my journey, all of that belonged inside the sanctuary of the church. The institution of the church gave me what no other institution could give me, a space to search for God. Now, before I say the benediction, just a quick invitation. I'll be out back, and I'd love to meet you. I really would. I don't say that in a perfunctory way. I love interacting with students, um, and I welcome your questions. You're welcome to contact me um, online if you have questions following up on this um, talk this morning. So thank you for having me. It was great to be here. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. Amen. Thank you.